Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lippman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We are glad to join you every week here on the Lone Star Podcast. This is Pastor Trey Graham from Texas, and I'm joined on the telephone by my good friend, Rabbi Dove Lipman. He is in Bet Shemesh in the land of Israel. Rabbi, hello, my friend. How are you, sir? Hi. Thank God, Pastor. Great to speak to you. Wishing happy holidays uh, to everyone. You know, in Israel, we don't feel it as much, but but certainly coming off the Christmas holiday and heading towards New Year's, we hope that everyone who's listening is enjoying with their family and sort of recharging the batteries. We did just finish a beautiful celebration of Christmas when we remember the birth of Jesus. We believe the Son of God who came to earth to be the Savior of the world. And we're headed toward New Year's. Now, New Year's comes January 1st on our calendar. It's not the same on the Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the idea of New Year's is always a time to set goals and make resolutions and turn the page from the past. So talk about your thoughts, generally speaking, about this idea of beginning a new year in the right way. It's always interesting uh, for us, and certainly growing up in America, where New Year's was you know, like, certainly very prominent in our lives, the whole New Year's resolutions and all of the end-of-the-year TV shows and, and reflection. It was always strange because as Jews, our New Year is Rosh Hashanah, which is usually in September time, in the beginning of the fall, because we go by the lunar calendar as opposed to by the solar calendar, and we have Hebrew months. So that's always the time for real reflection. There's a month beforehand of repentance, and then it leads up to Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So you're always torn because we just had our, our New Year's a few months ago, and now everyone else is going through it. But I have to tell you, I, I think it's for us it's Rosh Hashanah in the September time. Whenever it's done, I, I think it's so important for people of all faiths and all backgrounds to have some kind of a set time where they do go through the process of reflection on the past and also resolutions for the future. And I think that's sort of, the, in, our, in the Jewish faith and all of the uh, philosophy books, they talk about that's why we have the concept of a new day, of a new week, of a new month, of a new year. It's God giving us this concept of time, of renewal, and giving us the chance to repent uh, over things that we regret from the past and to tr- try to start uh, anew. And I have no doubt that there's a similar concept in the Christian faith. There is a desire for a new beginning, and we worship on Sundays. It's the first day of the week. It's the Lord's Day. It's the Resurrection Day when we remember that Jesus was raised from the dead. So every week, as you say, is a new start. And every year, whether it's Rosh Hashanah for the Jewish calendar or January 1st on the Gregorian calendar, you wonder what happened last year? Was it successful? Did I reach some goals? Did I drop the ball in certain ways? Things I can do to improve? And so talk about for a moment the different categories, because we're all dads and husbands and we're business people and we, we're spiritual leaders. You and I have different roles. And so all these different hats we wear, we can set goals and make changes and adjustments 
under all those categories. Absolutely. And I think that's when you go through that reflection, that's the way you go about it. You think about all the different elements of your life. And we very much, uh, through the Jewish faith, you know, we have the weekly Sabbath, the Shabbat, which is really a time to reconnect as a family and reconnect to your spouse and to your children. But on a daily basis, you have your work relationships and you have neighbor relationships and, and you have your relationship with God as well. We have prayer three times a day where we're you know, supposed to uh, do our best to try to reconnect. And every single time uh, we say, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Every single time we are going through that process of, of, of analyzing and is there something that I have to do better. I think the idea, though, there's, there's one of the commentaries in, in, in the Jewish faith that talks about you can't say I'll be a completely new person all across the board. You can't say I'll never sin again. The best thing to do, and this is something which I do every Rosh Hashanah and I tell my students all the time to do, is to find one thing. Choose one thing where you know I can keep to this, not some crazy resolution which you know you'll break after a few weeks, something real, something small, something tangible you can actually carry through on. And you can choose the area of your life to do that. And if you do that, then you're doing what a human being is supposed to do, which is over the course of life, growing spiritually, reflecting, trying to be better. Uh, sometimes we make these grandiose decisions which don't go anywhere, and it's much more effective to just find something small that you can actually accomplish and choose the area in your life where you feel that you want to make that change, but make it small, make it real, make it concrete, and actually follow through on it. There is a verse in the New Testament. It comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it says, written by the Apostle Paul, To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this prayer that the Apostle Paul writes, he says, we pray that God will count you worthy of your calling. In other words, that you live up to the level of righteousness or live up to the level of holiness that God has called you to. And this New Year's opportunity, whether it's Rosh Hashanah in September, January 1st on the Gregorian calendar, you can say, you know what, my past is my past, and I can't change that. All I can do is, as you've said, reflect on it, make adjustments, set some new goals. But also, Rabbi, you know this, there's an importance of what we call accountability, that I ask my brothers or sisters of the faith, pray for me. I, my goal is to be more a devoted student of the word or more a person of a prayer or more a person of generosity or whatever it is. Keep me accountable. Check up on me. Ask me how I'm doing. Pray for me. Talk about the importance of partnership or accountability. So there's two elements to that. One element to that is that we believe, and, and Maimonides actually rules us very, very clearly, that you cannot receive atonement for sins between man and man unless you receive forgiveness from the person that you've hurt. And you have to actually approach a person and ask them for forgiveness and, and achieve that forgiveness. So that's one level of accountability is just making things good with people uh, that, that we have hurt. Uh, the other element, uh, though, we definitely uh, do believe uh, in the power of prayer and, and prayer for others. 
uh, you know, show concern for other people, uh, the Talmud teaches, and then God can show concern for you. So there's a major element of the repentance process, of the renewal process, which relates to prayer uh, as well, and prayer not just for yourself, but for others. Doing things for others, then God can do for you. There's a tradition before prayers in the morning to, to do one act of kindness for someone, for anything. Uh, and then you can approach God and ask for things for yourself, showing that I'm concerned about the welfare of others and the well-being of others, both physical and spiritual. Uh, those are all things which help uh, in our tradition in that renewal process and trying to approach things uh, in, in a fresh way. So owning up to what we've done wrong between man and man, we also have the idea of confession to God. Uh, that's an integral part of the process, a determination that I'm going to try to do everything not to do it uh, again. And all of these things work together as we try to approach uh, renewal. So for us, that's a big part of the month leading up to Rosh Hashanah in, in the September time period uh, and, our, and our Jewish New Year. And I would suggest that even if it's not fixed in religious law, that people of other faiths take that same approach. Uh, and and it's New Year is going to be the time when we have the reflection and the resolutions for the future. And this will be the time to be going through, through that process. We do encourage our listeners, Jews and Christians, to take this time at the beginning of the new year, January 1st, on the Gregorian calendar. I keep mentioning it's not the new year of the Hebrew calendar, but it's a good time. Any time is a good time to stop, reflect, repent of sin, make atonement, as you say. If, if I have wronged someone, if I have offended them, if I have cheated them or lied to them, to repent to the brother or sister that I've offended and repent before the Lord. It's a good time to make some New Year's resolutions. And let's be honest, you can't make 50 goals and try to keep 50 goals. You can't make 20. You need to find two or three things maybe that the Lord is saying to you and everybody does the basic ones. I'm going to lose a little weight or I'm going to exercise more or you know I'm going to take up this hobby of something or other. But I, I hope our listeners will go deeper than that, that I'm going to be more kind this new year. I'm going to be more generous this new year. I'm going to be more forgiving or more patient or more holy this new year. And I hope our listeners will buy into spiritual things and not a lot, not a dozen or so, but two or three things that they might say, Lord, would you help me do this and this in a new year? And then maybe we'll talk to them maybe six months from now and ask them to look back and kind of grade themselves on how they've been doing. Because part of keeping those resolutions is accountability, we mentioned, but also doing a checkup. How am I doing on the goals that I set back at the start of the new year? This idea of reflection, you know, we, the two of us, are now highlighting doing this as the year comes to an end. Uh, ideally, a person would be doing this every single day. Uh, we even have in our tradition uh, that a person, before we go to bed, we have a uh, prayer that we say, and as part of that prayer, we forgive people who might have done something wrong to us during the day, and we do that before Yom Kippur also, all together. Uh, but the idea of even every single day uh, going through that process. We call it in Hebrew, a cheshbon hanefesh, which is like an accounting of the soul. In many yeshivot, in many rabbinic seminaries, there is a 30 to 45 minute uh, period of time every day where everyone is involved in self-reflection, character refinement, 
uh, on a daily basis. So, uh, you know, we're, we're certainly the once a year we should focus on, uh, but hopefully that could translate to a more ongoing process where we're continuously um, making that accounting. And, and I know that the idea of repentance and, and forgiveness are, are, are central to both of our faiths. So that's certainly something that we both share. I agree with you very much, and I'd like us to turn our attention to this week's Torah portion. You and I get the chance every week here on the Lone Star Podcast to study the Word of God together, the parashah, the portion of the Old Testament that the Jews gather around the Shabbat dinner table and in synagogue every week to discuss, and we get to discuss it from the Jewish and Christian perspective. And this week's Torah portion comes from Genesis chapters 47, 48, 49, and 50. And this really wraps up a story that we've been talking about for several weeks now, the last days of Jacob, the man whose other name is Israel, and his son Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, taken down to Egypt, eventually becomes the second in the command under the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. He shows forgiveness to his brothers when they come begging for food. We've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks because Joseph gets a lot of airtime in the book of Genesis. And we're wrapping up the story now about Jacob. And he comes to his death at the age of 147 years, and he's lived a long life, a difficult life, and introduce the story for us as we get into the parasha, and then we're going to walk through some of the passages that stick out to us. So Vayachi actually means, and he lived, and it begins by saying, and Jacob lived in Egypt, and this this portion almost completely is about Jacob's preparation uh, for his death. He's lived a long life. It says that he's lived 130 years before he came to Egypt, another 17 years in Egypt, and now it's time for him to pass on. And the first thing that he does is he calls his son Joseph and, and has Joseph's sons come in for a special blessing. That's part one. Part two, he makes it very clear that, uh, and I'm not going in chronological order, but that's one thing. Number two is he says, in the beginning of the portion, he says, make sure not to bury me in Egypt amongst the idolaters in the pagan world. Bring me back to the land of Israel and bury me in Hebron, in the cave of the patriarchs, where the other patriarchs and matriarchs are buried. And then the third part, he gives blessings and foretells some things about the future and even chastises his, the rest of his sons, uh, the tribes. So you have this long process, the burial, the, the blessings to Joseph's sons, and where he gives them a special significance and prominence. And then on his deathbed, talking to all of his sons. And you see a real process here of Jacob uh, preparing for uh, his death. It's emotional, uh, it's powerful, uh, and it's also instructional to see how a great leader uh, approaches this time as he's leaving the world. I want you, please, Rabbi, to help our Christian audience understand the idea of the 12 tribes of Israel. We've heard of that, of course, many, many times, but those 12 tribes get their names from Jacob's family, but it's not just his sons. In some cases, it's his grandsons because Jacob makes a decision to give a double portion to Joseph. And so give us kind of the the starting lineup, if you will, of the 12 tribes of Israel and how those relate to this story. So Jacob had 12 sons, and he goes through each one of them. Uh, Six of them were born to uh, Leah, 
uh, the first wife that he married, even though he wanted to marry Rachel. He has two from Rachel. And then he also married uh, the maidservants of each of those women and had children with them and had two with each of them. So that accounts for the 12. Uh, the starting lineup begins with the leadoff hitter, and that's Ruvain, who was his first son. And he actually very much struggles with Ruvain because Ruvain, on the one hand, as the firstborn, uh, should have been the leader, should have been the king, should have been the one to take over the leadership from Jacob. But we saw in Genesis that Ruvain actually sinned and did things that were wrong. He acted very quickly, and he loses uh, that title. And he, Jacob talks about that, and that it's given over, given over to someone else in the process. Uh, he talks about two other sons, Simeon and Levi, who he says that they're brothers. Uh, they also had tremendous potential to do good things with their brotherhood, but ended up going beyond that. They're, they're very zealous in nature, and they killed out the city of, of Shechem uh, earlier on in Genesis, and, and Jacob feels that they went too far with their anger, and that leads to consequences uh, for them. But then we get to Judah, and Judah is the king. Judah is uh, the father of King David. He's the father of, the uh, in the Jewish faith, the eventual Messiah, and gives him tremendous blessings about what that leadership will be like and, and how he has to lead uh, the people. Then we get the two tribes that are Zvulun and Issachar. By the way, just for those who are following, I'm middle of chapter 49, um, up to verse 13. You have Zvulun and Issachar, where our tradition has it that they had an arrangement. Zvulun was a businessman, very involved in making money. Issachar was the spiritual one who sat and studied the religious texts all day. And Zvulun supported Yisachar, and they split their reward, the heavenly reward, so to speak. Uh, they had this uh, uh, arrangement together. And then it continues on with other tribes, and the one that really sticks out is when we get to Joseph. And again, Joseph is a leader as well, and he gives him special blessings in terms of how his children will be and, and the impact that he will have uh, on the people. And what's amazing is you see Jacob relating to each one of his sons individually. Uh, and this is the important lesson of all of this. There's 12 tribes. They're not all the same. We cannot raise our children as the same. We cannot expect all people of faith to be the same. Certainly within the Jewish faith, there are people who have emphasis on different things. There are different groups, different focuses. Those who visit Israel will see all the different garbs that people are wearing in the different communities. And that's part of our understanding of the, of the tapestry of a people. That's why God wants to be 12 tribes. And you see Jacob relating to each of his sons individually and recognizing their strengths, giving them criticism where necessary, building them up where necessary. And, and this is something which for us as parents, it's critical to understand, to relate to each of our children as individuals. That's part one, to give them each what they need uh, specifically based on who they are, not to try to form them into the image that we want them to be. And that's a very, very prominent value in the Jewish faith. It's called Chanoch Lunar al educate the child according to his way. And then also thinking about the broader peoplehood and realizing everyone doesn't have to be exactly like me, and I can still respect them uh, for who they are. Uh, these are all elements that come out of Jacob's blessings to, to his children. And this is something which, again, you know, we talk about the things that our faiths uh, share. Uh, we share this Bible, we share this message, and there's no doubt that this is something which uh, both Jews and Christians should be able to embrace.
you mentioned the amazing prophecy that Jacob gives in Genesis 49 when he talks about each of his sons and, and, and indicates how they will live going forward. And you mentioned a number of the names, a few more that you didn't mention, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. But then you get to Joseph, and Joseph, the son, is one of the favorites of Jacob, along with Benjamin. Benjamin has a tribe. Joseph doesn't have a tribe because the father, Jacob, decides to give him a double portion and gives two sons of Joseph the credential of being a son. He promotes his grandsons to sons. Talk about that, please. So there's a lot of discussion about that. You'd think on the one hand, if we go back a few portions ago, we talked about this, the jealousy that was created when Jacob favored Joseph and all that led to with Joseph being sold into slavery and, and, and the, the entire uh, tragic years that they were separated from one another, Jacob and Joseph and, and all the issues with the brothers, you'd think that Jacob would not show favoritism again uh, to Joseph. And the commentaries discuss what exactly is going on here. One of the very interesting answers is that Joseph's two sons, they grew up in Egypt, away from the family, in pagan Egypt, steeped in this idolatrous country. And Jacob felt that in order to, to save them spiritually, he has to give them these special blessings and has to give them these special status to lift them up out of the pagan environment where they were raised uh, by Joseph in Egypt. And therefore, that's why they were given. It wasn't a favoritism. It was uh, almost a, a necessity, uh, given where he grew up compared to the rest of the families. But even if you want to say that he was showing some kind of extra love to Joseph, to his children, as the children and grandchildren of Rachel, uh, it's an amazing moment where you can see the reconciliation of Joseph and the brothers where everyone's accepting now and everyone realizes Joseph is at this point the leader. And as the leader, his sons do get something special. And that's something which we can rally around. Everyone has their role. Everyone has their place. and doesn't have to lead uh, to any kind of petty jealousy. So you see a little bit of a, an atonement from the brothers in their acceptance of Joseph uh, as the leader uh, in this place. We, in our faith, uh, we do have hierarchy. We do have people who are priests, we have people who are Levites, we have people who are kings, and, and we accept those roles, and we respect those people and accept it as the will of God. And uh, I, I'm not totally familiar, but I believe in the Christian faith, you also have that concept as well. We do have the idea of different roles, and the Father loving every person equally, but giving us different assignments or different roles or different responsibilities in his kingdom. Those two sons are Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, who become part of the 12 tribes later on when Joshua will divide up the promised land, the land of Canaan, into the 12 tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh will each be given a territory. And what I find very interesting and something I want your commentary on, we now have four consecutive generations where the younger brother was favored or blessed over the older brother. You had Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, and Ephraim over Manasseh. So four generations, the Lord 
picks things differently than human beings would. He changes the expected order of things, and we know that God can raise up leaders however he chooses to, but also when you see scriptural patterns, there's something, a lesson to be learned there. So what do you think? Four generations in a row, the younger now becomes the ruler or the favored one over the older brother. What do we learn from that? I'll take your, your question or point one step further. You go back to the beginning of Genesis, you have the first two sons to Adam and Eve. You have Cain and Hevel. Cain is the firstborn, and Hevel is born afterwards. And whose sacrifice is accepted and beloved by God? It's the second son, which leads to Cain actually killing Hevel. And I'll go a step further. You go to the story in Exodus of Moses and Aaron. Aaron is the firstborn, and Moses ends up being the, the leader. So you have this theme all the way through. There's two lessons I think they have to be learned. Three lessons actually have to be learned from that. One is is the point that God is the one who uh, chooses the leaders, and and He can give that power and give that ability to whoever uh, He chooses, and no one is just born into it. It can assume that they they is, take that mantle of leadership. That's part one. Part two is that anyone can accomplish anything, meaning not from the divine side now, but from the human side. We can take whatever lot we're given in life, and we can uh, assume greatness and, and, and work hard and achieve that greatness. And number three is how does the older brother accept the younger brother as the leader? We saw cases where it led to tragedy, and we saw cases where it led to the, the greatest of relationships, such as Aaron and, and, and Moses that we'll see uh, later on, and in this case, the brothers towards Joseph. The lesson of accepting God's will, accepting uh, the reality of situations, and, and not being jealous. They, we're, we're taught in our ethics of our fathers, who is a rich, someone who is happy with their lot, to accept what they've been given. And that's also a critical piece, and recognize that whatever you're given, uh, that's part of God's divine plan. But you actually see that train. You pointed out the four straight generations, and now I'm pointing out that you see it from the beginning of Genesis all the way through into Exodus as well. And to wrap up the starting lineup for our listeners, those 12 tribes of Israel, and I'll say them with the English pronunciation, of course, Reuben, Simeon, Ephraim, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Those are the 12 tribes that will be divided the territory up when Joshua comes several generations later. And for our Christian audience, they know that Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5, is called the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And we know that David comes from the tribe of Judah that we just mentioned, one of the 12, and that we in the New Testament read that Jesus in his earthly ancestry is a descendant of King David and from Judah. And that's why Revelation 5, 5 calls Jesus from the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah. And Rabbi, I want to point our listeners' attention to Genesis chapter 48, verse 15, And we've already mentioned several times that Jacob, whose other name is Israel, is a very old man, 147 years old. He's about to pass away. And Genesis 48, verse 15, the dad, Jacob, is blessing the son, Joseph, and he describes God in three different ways. And I find this to be a beautiful worship before the Lord. And I want you to comment on these descriptions of the Lord. Genesis 48, 15, he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. That's the first. 
The God who has been my shepherd all my life is the second, and the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. So in many ways, Jacob is worshiping the Lord by describing his different ways of showing grace or mercy or power. So talk about this beautiful blessing, Genesis 48, 15 and 16. Absolutely. And, and you see Jacob in this, in this reflective mode where first he talks about, where do I come from? The God who was walked with my fathers, recognizing the giants who walked before him, recognizing that anything he accomplished uh, was only through them and their relationship with God. Then he talks about the God who has been with him, shepherded him, God's involvement in his life uh, all the way through, recognizing God's role in everything that's happened to him. And then he turns towards his children and says, you know, let those blessings uh, uh, continue. Uh, let, let, let God's angels be with those children. Let them uh, shine their grace on those children and bring God to those children. So you see him realizing life doesn't just happen within our, the lifespan that we've been given. We're part of a chain. We're part of a connection. We're part of something that spans eternity. And recognizing God's role and God's involvement every step of the way. That's the way we and the commentaries talk about those verses and what Jacob is teaching us, uh, both on the individual level to recognize who we've come from, who we are, who we've been, and where we're heading in our families in the future. But to add to that, the most important element, which is God, which is the constant uh, element in all of this, he was there with the forefathers, he was there with me, and he'll be there together with my children. And that's a beautiful act of worship, and it's a prayer to the Lord before he passes away. And we also see very sad parts of this story. We went through what we called the starting lineup of all the 12 tribes in Genesis 49. Verse 16 talks about Dan and the tribe of Dan. And our Bible students out there will remember that when you get to Judges chapter 18, the first tribe to enter into the practice of idolatry, that was the tribe of Dan in Judges chapter 18. So what's sad is you can pray for your children, you can pray for your great or great, great, great grandchildren and ask the Lord to bless them, but then they have the responsibility to follow the Lord and be obedient and be righteous people. And sadly, some will go astray. And we see that in the tribe of Dan several generations later. Absolutely. And there is uh, an element of foretelling. We, we in the Hebrew call it Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, which uh, Jacob has, and he's able to understand things that will be happening in the future. And in every single verse where he talks to his sons, uh, there's actually foretelling of the future uh, as well in terms of in terms of their nature and what's going to be. And you, on the one hand, you feel that maybe Jacob is warning them a little bit, and maybe they can have some kind of impact on what's going to happen in the future. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's also just understanding that um, there is destiny, and there is there are forces at work sometimes uh, that are out of our control, and we just have to try to navigate uh, between that and use our free will to the best that we can, and given uh, the lot that we're given. And you see a lot of that in Jacob actually foretelling what's going to happen uh, in the future. It's a constant question uh, in the Jewish faith. I'm very curious about uh, Christianity, this, this balance between what's been decreed and the free will. And, and we actually say that it's a question which we can't really answer. It's, it's beyond the human comprehension. It's something which is in the hands of God. 
and, and that's the way we deal with it. But we do believe that people have absolute free will. But when you see a section like this where Jacob is foretelling the future and telling them, like you mentioned with Dan, this is the way it's going to be, it's a question uh, which, we, which we grapple with. I'm curious how the Christian faith deals with that. We struggle often with the idea of sovereignty of God versus free will of man. And do they both exist? Does one have precedence or power over the other? And I try to tell our church members that I believe in the sovereignty of God, 100%. I believe in the free will of man, yes, except I must give the caveat within the boundaries that God sets up. Okay, man has free will only in the boundaries or the allowances of God. You and I cannot choose to become an angel today. We don't have the free will to do that. You and I don't have the ability to become the king of England today. We don't have free will in that regard. So there are boundaries in which we operate that God gives us free will, but we never believe that our free will somehow can overpower or change the sovereign plan of God because then he's not God. The cliche in the Christian world is, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? He's never caught off guard. He's never surprised by things. And so you and I can't make a decision as a human being, as part of creation, that will surprise or catch off guard the creator. So we believe the sovereignty of God is universal. It cannot be changed. It cannot be competed with. And our free will is true because we were created in the book of Genesis, in the image of God, imago Dei is the Latin. And part of the image of God that we receive as his creation is the ability to think and reason and believe and have joy and emotions. And that's what separates human beings as creation from the animal kingdom in creation. But the free will of man is something that is given to us within the boundaries or the allowances of what God himself sets up. And so when you say we can't understand it completely, that's obvious because it's bigger than our human brains can understand. So when you ask me, do we have free will and does God have sovereignty? And the answer is yes. And the answer is both. But God's sovereignty is always going to be preeminent in that conversation. Exactly. And that's exactly the way we, we deal with it as well. And also recognize our limitations as human beings that we can't understand uh, the ways of God, and there are things that we can't understand. That's a good lesson for us to learn in a world where we think we know everything, we've conquered everything in technology, to recognize we're just human beings, and we don't understand everything, and we leave that to the hands of God. We need to come to the end of this week's parasha. We need to get to Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph leads this huge procession, including the brothers who are the Jews, the other sons of Jacob, and a bunch of Egyptian dignitaries, and they have chariots and wagons and all of these things, and they make a huge procession when Joseph takes his father's body back to the land of promise, the land of Israel, to be buried. It's interesting to note the stats that it's been 22 years since Joseph was last in the land of Canaan, the land of promise, and he goes back to bury his father as a fulfillment of the promise, the request that was made by Jacob. But it's also a foreshadowing of your people, the Jews, will go back to Israel, the land of promise, after the slavery of Egypt, which we'll read all about in the next Torah portion in the book of Exodus. And also, it's very interesting that this is the fourth time the brothers made the journey back and forth from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. 
because they had to go back to see the dad and come back to talk to Joseph and go back to see the dad. So they've made this trip a lot. And so what I want to ask you is to talk about the procession leading the body of Jacob back, but also how that relates to the Exodus story that we'll read about in a few weeks. It's really quite dramatic how it, how it describes this. Because let's remember, and, and sometimes they forget this, Joseph was the, the leader uh, of Egypt, and his father, Jacob, when he came, was given tremendous, tremendous uh, respect. And, and the Pharaoh uh, revered him uh, for being the father of this man, Joseph, who saved the Egyptian people through his interpretation of the dreams and the plan that he put into place to make sure that they had food uh, to deal with the famine. And, and the Bible really, it really gives a, a long uh, discussion uh, about it. It says that Jacob dies, and there was a long process, and it talks about that we're in chapter 50 right now. It talks about the Egyptian people dying, uh, sorry, crying over this. There, was a, there, was, there were national days of mourning. And then uh, jo- Joseph asked permission to bury uh, Jacob in, in the land of Israel. And Pharaoh doesn't only say yes, but he says, hey, uh, there's going to be a process, a uh, processional, uh, uh, all of my servants go along with you and all the elders of Egypt. And, and you see this incredible process of how they're escorted together and they have horses and chariots. It describes in verse 9 uh, and a large, large group. And, and the way our, our sages understand the process, as they traveled uh, north towards Israel, north, uh, east towards Israel, uh, other nations came in to see what is going on over here. What is this procession? Who are all these people? Who's this person who was buried? And it led to this incredibly uh, great mourning uh, for, for Jacob and just tremendous, tremendous uh, respect uh, that, that happened. And, and again, you see this, the Egyptians and the Pharaoh being part of that. If you want to contrast that to the Jews leading leaving in the time of the Exodus, where we were fleeing and running and Pharaoh chasing after us and, and, and fearful for our lives, uh, you see uh, a difference that a few generations uh, can make. Uh, this is something which, sadly, the Jewish people have, have learned throughout our history. We've had you know, the greatest of times in, in various countries. You know, one example certainly is Spain, uh, but you can think of many others. Uh, where everything was wonderful, we were revered and respected and part of society, and then over time, you know, things change, and, and, and we end up fleeing uh, from those places. We call that Maisa Avot Siman Lebanim, that what happens to the fathers happens to the children, and that's what happens over here as well, as you pointed out, the contrast between this exodus, so to speak, to bury Jacob with all of its pomp and circumstance and honor, and the leaving of Egypt that takes place uh, later on in the book of, in the book of Exodus. And it's sad uh, to see that. And it's, you know, on the one hand, you see what, what it could be like uh, that we see in this week's portion, uh, but you also see the other side of the coin, which will happen later on. And I have one last question for you, Rabbi. We've now studied the last 14 chapters of Genesis, from 37 to 50, a lot of airtime given to this guy, Joseph. And we believe that God is the author of the Bible. He instructed the men who actually wrote it down exactly what to say by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, to tell the men, authors, what to write. Why do you think God chose to give so much ink, so much airtime to this man, Joseph, so much more than many, many other Bible characters? What do you think the lesson is that he got so much attention in the book of Genesis? I think that Joseph is is the ultimate figure in terms of 
combine together all the different elements of life. On the one hand, to be a, a physical human being who, who has an involvement in the physical world and is able to be a leader in the physical world, but also to be righteous and spiritual at the same time. You know, it's very easy to say, I'll go off to some desert island somewhere and, and be all spiritual. But God put us in this world. He didn't put us on a desert island. Uh, it's certainly easy to be gluttonous and just focus on the physical, and obviously that's a meaningless life, but a person can do that. The challenge is to find that balance, to be in the physical world, earning a living, family life, and all the challenges that come along with being in the physical world, but to also be righteous at the same time. I think that Joseph is the one uh, who really captures that. That's why in our tradition, he's the only one who's given the title Hatzadik. Tzadik is a righteous person. Uh, he's the one in the Bible that's given that title because he combines all of that together. And, and you, can, you see that he's able to survive in pagan Egypt, still stick to his traditions, still trick to, stick to his spirituality and faith in God, and able to lead both the Egyptians on the physical level and also his family on the spiritual level. So I believe he's the, the, the model, the example that we want to walk away with from all of the personalities in, in Genesis. And I believe that's why uh, his story is given so much attention. And, and as, as you pointed out, uh, the story totally revolves around him for so many portions because we're supposed to learn from his example. We always enjoy the chance to talk about the Word of God together from the Jewish and Christian perspective. Rabbi Lippman, my friend, I want to say to you, Happy New Year and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. And we, when we finish reading this portion in the synagogue on, on the Sabbath, because it's the end of the book of Genesis, there's a chant that goes out in the synagogue where we say in Hebrew, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek, that uh, be strong, be strong, we're going to strengthen each other. So certainly we should continue to uh, strengthen each other and studying the portion together and having these weekly conversations. And I wish everyone a happy holiday season and it should be a new year filled with only good news from one to the other, a health, happiness, and spiritual growth. And look forward to, to great things between this relationship that we have, uh, both as individuals and the Jewish and Christian faiths as we work together uh, to make Israel. Uh, even greater and bring more light into the world. So I wish you a Shabbat Shalom and a Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.